as we begin this season of Advent, we're entering into a season that is often called a middle space. Jesus Christ appeared some 2,000 years ago. He entered into the world in Bethlehem in a manger, and we look back on this event with awe and wonder. But we also start to feel the tension because Christ also promised that he would return. And so Advent is a looking forward in hope that Jesus Christ will return and establish the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And we live in between his appearings. We live in this tension. We live between patience and impatience, joy and sorrow, laughter and tears, hope and despair. And as we live in this middle space, it's hard not to ask what's taking so long. But that is a challenge for us to press in and to pray one of the earliest prayers of the ancient church, Maranatha, which means, come, Lord Jesus, come. We should see Advent as an invitation. Advent is an invitation to bring our pains and our hurts and all these unresolved things in our lives to bring these things before God in hope and in prayer. And that's why why we'll be studying the book of Ruth for the season of Advent because Ruth is also about a middle space. The two main characters, Naomi and Ruth, they're remarkable women and they have so much to show us about suffering, about hope and about redemption. Uh, When it comes to this little book of Ruth, one scholar actually calls it the greatest short story ever written. Now, I think we will allow that hyperbole as we get more familiar with the book ourselves. Let me give you just three quick reasons of why this short story is so remarkable. First, how women are portrayed in the book of Ruth, it's remarkable. We have to acknowledge there is a huge cultural gap between our present moment and when this book took place between our cultural world and the world of Naomi and Ruth. They lived in a hyper-patriarchal society and in a male-dominated culture that ascribed women value based on their relationship to men. These husbandless, sonless women were of no interest to anyone in their cultural moment. But as it turns out, they were of great interest to God. They're at the very center of what God is doing in the world at that time. And they demonstrate an astonishing resilience and strength and bravery and hope that shows us women are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. But the second remarkable thing about Ruth is the love story. But I'm not talking about the love story between Ruth and Boaz. A thin reading of this text could leave us with the impression that the best thing that could happen to a single woman is that she find a husband and have a baby. And don't get me wrong, marriage and babies are good and beautiful gifts from God, but that is not what Ruth is about, and that is not the vision of womanhood portrayed by Ruth. There is more to being a woman we see in this book than marriage and babies. The love story featured in Ruth is God's quiet and faithful love working all things for his good purpose. And Naomi and Ruth are caught up in God's love story, a love that seeks after the suffering, a love that seeks after the marginalized and the hurting and the despairing. And even though they couldn't fully know it or even fully see it, the book of Ruth ends with Ruth taking her place in the genealogy of Jesus himself. It's remarkable. It's a remarkable love story. The other remarkable feature of Ruth is what it teaches us about suffering. 
Eugene Peterson wrote, no literature is more realistic and honest in facing the harsh facts of life than the Bible. At no time is there the faintest suggestion that the life of faith exempts us from difficulties. On every page of the Bible, there's recognition that faith encounters trouble. And it's this reality in Ruth that becomes so clear. And Ruth equips us not only to suffer well, but to walk with people who are suffering well. So let's begin our study of this remarkable short story. Uh, The theme of our passage today is this. In the pain, in the heartache, in the tragedy, God moves in a mysterious way. And we're going to look at that in three points. The context, the conversation, and the reception. So if you own a Bible, open it up to the book of Ruth. It is between Judges and 1 Samuel. If you don't own a Bible, please take one of our gray Bibles home with you. We would love for you to have that. Everything will also be on the screen behind me. Uh, Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elamelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So we begin with the context. If we're going to understand Ruth, we have to understand its messy context. And it kicks us off saying, this all took place in the time when the judges ruled the land. And so we're stretching back to about the 8th century BC. We just completed a study in the book of Daniel. We're going further back in time than that, further back in time than King David. We're going back into a period of time that is summarized as everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But that doesn't sound too different from how we live today, does it? We live in a culture that prides itself in enabling and allowing people to be whoever they want and do whatever they want so long as they don't hurt anybody in the process. But when this ethic is pushed to the extreme, you get the book of Judges. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And the book ends with a young Israelite girl being sexually abused, dismembered, and mailed throughout all of Israel, resulting in civil war. And there's this heartbreaking cycle in Judges. The nation of Israel rejects God, rejects his way, rejects walking in his paths, and God hands them over to themselves. And they begin to experience the consequence of doing what is right in their own eyes. And things go bad to worse. And then they repent. They cry out. And God raises up a judge, a political and spiritual warrior. And under the judge, their enemies are subdued. And blessing is returned. And the nation starts to prosper again. And then the cycle repeats. Israel rejects God. Things go from bad to worse. God raises up a judge for them. They repent. They return. The cycle repeats. As Ruth begins, they're supposed to be living in a land flowing with milk and honey, but instead, there's famine. And since this is during the days of the judges, we have to assume that they are in a cycle where the nation of Israel has abandoned God and his ways and are yet to return to God with repentance. And so God has withdrawn his blessing from them, and the visible sign is famine, And it portrays their spiritual reality. And the famine is so severe 
that Elimelech decides to relocate his family from Israel to Moab. Now, on the surface, that doesn't sound all that controversial, but imagine if your friend told you they were going to move from Vancouver to Uranium City, Saskatchewan, population 73, you would think they've lost their minds. Why would you want to live somewhere where uranium is mined, let alone in Saskatchewan and let alone with 73 other people? Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons, they leave Bethlehem and Judah. They leave the promised land, a land they believed was given to them from God himself, and they go to Moab, a foreign pagan land that worshipped other gods. How are we supposed to feel about this move? How are we supposed to interpret it? It's common to take a negative view. You can find this in the ancient Jewish writings about Ruth. You can find it in modern commentaries. But since everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, Elimelech was just following the ways of the culture, and it's an act of disobedience and, and faithlessness. But whether or not this is true is hard to say because the text actually doesn't say anything about his motives whatsoever. There's no comment. And so there's an alternative possibility, a positive possibility. Think of Genesis when there's a famine toward the end of the book. Jacob, the patriarch, takes his entire family out of the promised land and leads them where? To Egypt, the place of their slavery. He wasn't being unfaithful. He was being pragmatic. Could it be that Elimelech was being pragmatic? We just don't know. And that's one of the beautiful things about the way the book of Ruth is written. It wants there to be these ambiguous moments. We're not, we're not entirely sure what's happening. It's meant to provoke questions and doesn't seek to resolve all of those questions so that we focus on the bigger matters. But what we do know is that when the family leaves and arrives in Moab, things go from bad to tragic. Look at verse 3. But Elamelech, the son of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived about there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. As soon as Elimelech is introduced to us, he dies. He's, he's gone. And Naomi is widowed. A terribly vulnerable position in the ancient world. And she finds herself widowed and alone in a foreign land without the, ex the help of extended family, no social network. There was no life insurance. There was no sizable bank, bank account. They were running from famine, but the famine was also catching up with them. But she has her two sons, so they'll be okay. But then they marry Moabite wives. And this is another questionable moment because it is explicitly forbidden in Israel's scriptures to marry uh, people of other cultures in this season of, of God's work in the world. They're supposed to maintain their distinction as Israel. And here these two Israelites marry Moabite wives. But what we also see is Ruth is fundamental to what God is doing in the world. So are these two young men acting in disobedience, or is this a movement of God's grace, or more realistically, is it both? 
Are they living in questionable ways? And yet God in his goodness and mercy is still showing up in even better ways. The text provokes these sort of questions, doesn't it? And it doesn't answer them. What we do know is 10 years go by and neither of these women have children. They're infertile. Naomi has no grandchildren. And infertility in the ancient world was a sign of what? God's curse. At least that was popular opinion. So are they cursed? And then things go from bad to worse. Both of their husbands, both of Ruth's sons die. Is God judging them? You see, the collapse of Naomi's world, it didn't happen overnight. It happened over 10 years of progressive tragedy, of things from going from bad to worse. In many ways, she finds herself like Job, losing everything. She's widowed, and all she has is her barren, widowed daughter-in-laws. And widowhood and infertility in the ancient world were so highly stigmatized. And it grieves me that they're still stigmatized today, so I'd be amiss not to just pause here for a moment and to say, if you identify with either of these things, if you've been struggling quietly, if these are your reality, you need to know that your story has a place in this community. And I want to acknowledge that the church doesn't always do a great job at making room and space for uh, the narratives that don't appear to be the, the, the best and easiest way of life, the way things should go. But we want to acknowledge that what God is doing in the world is much bigger than those simple narratives. And so if you have the courage or, the, or you're willing to take the risk and to say, this is my story, this is something that I'm walking through and it's been hard, we would love to hear from you. We'd love to learn from you and we'd love to discover how to walk with you. As we look at this context, the thing is, are we supposed to see it all as God's judgment? There's certainly questionable decisions and choices, but the question is left open just like the sad and tragic events of life. We never have all of the facts. We never have all of the answers. But when the bottom falls out, when we can't help but ask why, what is God doing? Why is he allowing this to happen? And it's not always clear. That's the context. So having considered the context, let's look at the conversation. We read in verse 6 that once again, God has visited his people. Uh, The Hebrew word here, it doesn't mean that God just popped by and and said hello like an episode of Friends. He's not Joey. Uh, It conveys instead this powerful and dramatic visitation in which the tables are turned, where curse is undone and blessing is restored and life begins to emerge. And once again, there is food on the table. And Naomi, she hears about this. She hears that God has visited his people again. And so she's brave. She says, I'm going to go home. I'm going to go back to the land of Israel. There's food there. But on the way home, she she tries to dissuade her daughter-in-laws. She doesn't want them to come with. We continue in verse 8. Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Don't overlook what Naomi says. May the Lord deal kindly with you. The word is hesed. 
It's better translated as loving kindness or steadfast love. It is a quality of love that is steady and faithful and enduring and unswerving, a committed love that is an expression of God's faithfulness to his promises. It's an unbreakable love in an unbreakable relationship. Even in her grief, Naomi appeals to God's said. This is significant. She's not this one-dimensional character. Yes, she's going to go on to say things in this very chapter that seems to say that she might just be paying lip service to these words. But she still says them. She's more complex than these, these broad strokes that we often give to her. Naomi's conviction is that God will show his said, his loving kindness, even to foreigners. This is shocking theology in the time of the judges. Naomi is showing a better understanding of God's character than had yet really been revealed to his people. But here's the thing. Naomi believes God could show his said, his loving kindness, even to foreigners, but he will not show his said to her. He doesn't offer it to her. And so Naomi, she is trying to dissuade her daughter-in-laws from coming with her. She's empty. She has nothing to offer them. She can't offer them any more offspring. There is no future for them if they come with her. And so once again, she tries to persuade them. In verse 13, it concludes, Don't follow me, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Now we get a a real look into how Naomi's processing all of this. Naomi doesn't say, God isn't at work. God isn't helping me. It's much more uncomfortable than that. She says, God's hand is against me. God's hand is against me. This is not misfortune or fate or bad luck. She believes God has acted decisively against her in a harmful way. God's hand is against her. That's how she sees it. And God has taken away her husband and her sons and her future. How else is she supposed to understand it? And can we sit in that discomfort with her? Isn't there something in you that immediately wants to correct rather than to stay with her in this discomfort? Naomi wants Orpah and Ruth to leave because there's still hope for them. They're young. They can start over. They can meet another husband. They can have a future. They don't have to suffer needlessly alongside her anymore. And reluctantly, Orpah listens. She heeds Naomi's plea. She weeps. She turns around. She heads home. But Ruth clings to Naomi. Ruth clings to Naomi. There's such a contrast between Orpah and Ruth here. Sometimes people want to contrast that Orpah's being unfaithful and wicked and Naomi's being faithful and righteous, but that's not it. Orpah's being sensible. She's doing the right thing. And Ruth is being reckless. It makes sense to go back home, doesn't it? It makes sense to go where there's a future, especially when your mother-in-law believes the God of the universe's hand is against her. Why would you align with that person? Why would you cling to someone with no future? And the word cling here is used to describe when a husband and wife become one. 
It's also used to describe a special and unique bond with God. To Naomi's surprise, Ruth clings to her. She shows said to her mother-in-law. She is embodying the quality of love of God in this moment. She's holding on to someone with no future. She will not leave. And once again, Naomi is going to try to dissuade her daughter-in-law. Look at verse 15. She says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth won't be dissuaded. And now she says some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. For where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. This is more than kindness. This is more than kindness. Ruth is limiting her options. Ruth Ruth is denying, in a sense, her future. This is a sacrificial and generous choice to cling to her mother-in-law. Knowingly or unknowingly, she is demonstrating God's said, God's steadfast love, even toward Naomi. And her response is disproportionate to the reality. It really is. That's why it's reckless. It makes no sense. Why would you cling to Naomi this way? Naomi has just said, God's hand is against me. And Ruth says, your God shall be my God. I dare you to try that as an evangelistic approach this week. (laughs) See how it goes for you. How do we explain this draw that Ruth suddenly has to the God of Israel? By his own account, C.S. Lewis remained suspended somewhere between atheism and the gospel for quite some time. But on his way home from Oxford, he describes the moment that God closed in on him. And he wrote this, I became aware that I was holding something at bay or shutting something out. Or if you like, that I was wearing some stiff clothing like corsets or even a suit of armor as if I were a lobster. I felt myself being there and then given a free choice. I could open the door or keep it shut. I could unbuckle the armor or keep it on. The choice appeared to be momentous, but it was also strangely unemotional. I was moved by no desires or fears. In a sense, I was not moved by anything. I chose to open, to unbuckle, to loosen the rein. I say I chose, yet it did not really seem possible to do the opposite. You could argue that I was not a free agent, but I'm more inclined to think this came nearer to being a perfectly free choice than most than I've ever done. We can't know exactly what was going on in Ruth's heart. I doubt it was unemotional like Lewis. What drew her away from Moab and towards Naomi? We can't know. What drove her to abandon the God she knew and align herself with the God of Israel? We can't know. But I suspect she would say with Lewis, it did not really seem possible to do the opposite. There was a movement of God's grace upon her life, drawing her to himself. And maybe you're here and you've been feeling that pull. You've been feeling that pull towards faith and you can't explain it. 
It doesn't make sense. You could come up with the reasons why you should keep it at bay, and yet you feel the pull, and on the other hand, it makes the most sense it could ever make. And maybe it's time to let faith take root like it did in Ruth or like it did in Lewis. Now, whether Naomi and Ruth could see it or not, God's hand was not against them. It was at work in this very moment, drawing Naomi and Ruth into his mysterious, unseen work in the world. God is knitting everything together in his loving purposes for them. Now, I also want to be clear, just in case some of you are wondering, this is not normative behavior for your relationship with your mother-in-law. It's much more radical than that. I hate to break it to you. It is way more radical than that. The remarkable faith of Ruth challenges us all, women and men. Her faith is more radical than Abraham. Abraham, yes, left everything behind, but he had a promise. He had a vision of God. You think of the apostles. They left behind their nets. They left behind their careers. They followed Jesus, but Jesus was there. Ruth has nothing. She hasn't had an epiphany. She hasn't seen God show up. All she's heard is the testimony that God's hand is against Naomi. And by all appearances, this is true. She leaves everything. No promise, no guarantee, no foreseeable hope. And all the same, she comes toward God. And all I can think is, may we have the courage to pray for a faith like that. This reckless faith. Because Ruth ultimately becomes one of the mothers of Christ himself. She finds her place in his genealogy because true faith, the faith that draws near to the God of the universe, is the faith that also turns outsiders into family. Faith is how you're adopted into God's family and treated like a child and given the full benefits of his love and his goodness and his kingdom. You see, the conversation then between Naomi and her daughter-in-laws and specifically Naomi and Ruth, it shows the clash between the disorientation of suffering and remarkable faith and how the two can be held in the same space together. So having listened to the conversation, let's look at our last point, the reception. We continue in verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? Is this Naomi? Once again, it's ambiguous. There's scholars who say time had been harsh to Naomi. The famine had been so severe that she returns looking so gaunt that people have struggled to recognize her. Is this Naomi? But the other option is that this is elation. This is delight. Is this Naomi? We haven't seen you in 10 years. Is this Naomi? And here's why I'm inclined to think it's this way. God has just visited his people. God has just restored his blessing. God is revealing his goodness. There's food on the tables of Israel. And now God is drawing people back home. Is this Naomi? We haven't seen you in 10 years. But it's quickly snuffed out. Naomi said to them in verse 19, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. 
for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me that the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Naomi's suffering has been so intense. Her despair is so deep that she calls for a fundamental identity change. She's no longer Naomi, which means sweet or good-natured. She's Mara, which means bitter. And she reasserts that God's hand is against her. She says, I left full. And I've come back empty. And so now is a good time to take a closer look at Naomi's suffering. First, this passage emphasizes the appropriateness of lament. Raw, unfiltered lament. Just like Job, Naomi cries out and expresses her disorientation, her disillusionment, her disappointment, her hurt, her pain, her tears, her anger, her questions, and it might make us uncomfortable even. But it's in Scripture. God is showing us that he is not surprised by these sort of moments, these sort of expressions. And we can't know for certain why we suffer because we never have all the facts. Suffering is ambiguous and it, it raises these sort of fears and perspectives and angers that this voice is present in Scripture, this voice is present in our community and expressing it is not an act of disobedience but an act of hope, an act of faith. When people lament, they're saying this is not how things should be, which means they're declaring that God is the sort of God who makes things right and good and whole and beautiful and loving. They're giving voice to that pain of their suffering, of how the reality is so far from what they see in God's promises. You don't have to clean up your lament. You don't have to wax poetic and say things correctly. Lament. If you need to lament, lament. But second, this passage shows us what matters most to those who are suffering are not our words, but our actions. Ruth doesn't try to correct Naomi's theology, not once. She doesn't try to minimize her pain, and she doesn't give up on her either. Naomi even tries to push Ruth away, and often people who are in grief and suffering will try to push you away. But Ruth commits to Naomi. She clings to Naomi. She walks with Naomi. See, often people who are suffering or going through prolonged grief they don't need our words, they need our presence. And if they remember our words, unfortunately, it's usually because you've said something stupid. Often, what people need is not a trite lesson, but a friend, a companion, a compassionate ear, and an enduring present, present reality of a friend that's there for them. You see, Ruth challenges us not to ignore the suffering in our midst but to embrace it, to cling to those who are suffering, and to walk with those who are suffering, rather than let the suffering relegate them to the margins. Because that experience is not abnormal in this world. I fear it might actually be normative. But what we also see in Naomi's homecoming is how suffering can skew our perception. Suffering can skew our perception. No, Naomi has said, 
She left full and came back empty. And here's how this chapter ends. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Naomi claims she left full during a famine and returned empty during a harvest. Famine, full, harvest, empty. There is a gap, there's a giant chasm between her experience and what God is actually doing in the world. Do you see that? Suffering can skew our perception, and understandably so. So when I say this, that's not to shame anyone who is suffering. And to be fair, we see in Job's friends that even if you're not suffering, your perception of reality can be skewed. But knowing this, Knowing that suffering skews our perception means that when we're suffering, in some level, we need to begin to distrust ourselves. Your experience is valid. Your interpretation of your experience, not always. But it won't be the time or place for you to be corrected in that. You might not even be able to muster up the faith in that moment. And so what we need is to press into the people God places around us who model that patient, resilient compassion and understanding and love and allow their faith to journey alongside us even when we're disoriented by suffering. Because here's the beauty in the passage. God's hand is not against Naomi. God is sovereign. She is absolutely right about that. God is in control. He's not uninvolved or inattentive. This isn't a giant divine whoops. And as uncomfortable as it may make us, God remains sovereign over her suffering. He has allowed it. But God is also with her in the suffering. God is also with her in her very very circumstances. And he's at work in her deep, tragic pain and loss. And Naomi's pain is so deep that her suffering, it doesn't allow her to see it, at least not yet. But Naomi is not empty. She's returned home, and she's returned home without her husband and without her sons, and that is deeply painful. And I can understand why she would say, I'm empty. But she's also come home with Ruth. And she's also come home during the barley harvest. And she's come home to Bethlehem. And she can't possibly know that through Ruth will come King David And ultimately, the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself, hundreds of years later in a manger in Bethlehem. She can't know that. But the movement of what God will do all those years later in Bethlehem is at work here in Naomi and in Ruth. It includes the widow and the barren and the foreigner and is not absent of them. God works through them. His hand is upon them. Even in the suffering, mysteriously, God is at work. And God uses those who are pushed to the outskirts of society, those who are questionable, those who appear cursed, to advance his kingdom. They're not peripheral. They're not on the edges. They're at the very center of what God is doing in this moment in history. Which means no matter who you are, there is a place for you in his kingdom too. No matter how much of an outsider you may feel like. God wants to bring you into the very center of his work in this world. 
Because what God will ultimately do in Bethlehem years later, through his son, is for the world. It's for our pain. It's for our suffering. It is for the barren. It is for the widow. It is for the hurting. It is for the marginalized. It is for everyone. God entered into the world and identified with our suffering and also overcame our suffering. God is always at work doing a thousand things we can never really see or know. That's that's the case in this story, isn't it? God is mysteriously at work in these two women preparing the world for his son. And Advent reminds us, friends, we don't always see well in the dark. Christ appeared and we wait and we wait and we wait. And we wait in an ambiguous time where we suffer and we hurt and we struggle to understand what God is doing in our midst. But we're invited to discover that the disorientation of suffering and reckless faith can exist together. And Advent invites us to bring those two things back together. We can bring those two things back together as a community. By walking together, by acknowledging suffering in our midst, and by bearing witness to God's goodness at the same time, and not trying to hold those things apart, but say they belong together. But all of us in this text are challenged by these women to this reckless faith, this radical hope, that God is mysteriously at work in the pain, in the heartache, in the tragedy. God is moving in mysterious ways and in tens and thousands of ways that we can't possibly see. God is at work preparing the world for the return of Christ. So let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus, come.